In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, the heavenly-minded are of no earthly good. Have you heard this? Those are arguably the most well-known words by one of the most well-known American poets of the 19th century. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. wrote it. And he was a part of, maybe you remember, the, the fireside poets, kind of the middle to late 19th century American poets that kind of became world famous, and by that I mean they got popular in Europe. He wrote these words, and they became so well-known that a hundred years later, it inspired even a Johnny Cash song. You remember this one from 1977? Titled, No Earthly Good. That's where he got the title from, and the refrain. <laughs> Holmes's point is that there are Christians i.e., heavenly-minded people who are so concerned with heaven, so focused on getting there, so consumed with what heaven will be like, so wrapped up and invested in the life that is to come that they don't bother to show much, if any, care or concern about their life right here and now. And it's not even so much about the individual life that, that Oliver Holmes is addressing, but his point is to say they care so much about heaven, they care so much about the afterlife, that they don't care about the people right in front of them. In this life, right here and now. The heavenly-minded are of no earthly good. Your reaction to that, I'll give you mine. It's possible. Theoretically, I suppose it could happen that a nominal Christian thought and lived and acted in this way that they were so heavenly minded that they had little to no care about their world or their neighbor. But I got to tell you, I've never seen it. Now, that isn't to say, again, that those people don't exist, that they couldn't exist. And to be honest with you, I've encountered a number of Christians, myself included, that fail to show genuine love and concern for the world in which they live and the people standing right in front of them. But... It's not because they have some sort of hyper-focus on heaven. What I have seen, however, both in myself and in plenty of Christians I have been called to serve, what I have seen is what the Apostle Paul warns us against this morning in his letter to the Philippians where Paul warns us of a far more likely, and quite frankly, a far more dangerous reality 
than being too heavenly minded. As Paul starts to bring his short letter to the Philippians, only four chapters, as he starts to bring it to a close, he concludes by really comparing two different ways to live your life. Two different ways that people can walk through life. And the first that Paul brings up is one that he encourages Christians to follow. He says, join with others in following my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Paul says, join with others, join with others in this Philippian congregation, get together and follow my example. Live your lives like I live my life, Paul says. Now, that's really strange, isn't it? When you think about some of the things that Paul admitted about his life, for example, Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, wonderful, of whom I am the worst. Paul also wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So here's Paul, who by his own admission was the worst of sinners and the least of the apostles, telling this congregation, be like me. A guy who once persecuted the Christian church. Now, you have to know a thing or two about the Apostle Paul to understand that there is not a shred of arrogance in anything that Paul is saying here. Because that's what it sounds like, right? If you guys really want to live good, godly lives, then just do what I do. Just live like I live. Be like me. That sounds like an extremely arrogant thing for someone to say. But that's not how Paul means it. No, Paul simply recognized that as human beings, we all model our lives after someone else, or at least parts of our lives. Or we all like to think that we're lone wolves just doing life by blazing our own paths and, and our own trails that no one else has ever walked before. We bought into the whole thing when our parents told us we were delicate, unique snowflakes, but the fact is, we're not. Someone helped mold us. Someone helped mold our lives. Someone trained our way of thinking. Someone has shaped us. And Paul understood that we're all constantly learning and looking up to others for that education, for that guidance. You see someone who is successful in your line of work. Or a kid in your class who seems to have all of the answers in a particular subject. Or an athlete in a sport that you really enjoy. We look to people, we look to people like that, and we want to learn from them. We want to imitate them, hoping in a similar result. And when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to living one's faith, Paul says, imitate me. Not because Paul had lived a perfect life, 
Not because Paul had done a better job of overcoming temptation and avoiding sin. No, he's already admitted that he hasn't. Paul knew that his example, his way of life, was worthy of other Christians to imitate only because of his connection to God. Paul didn't want people thinking about how great he was. He wanted them to think about how unbelievably amazing the triune God had been in his life. After all, it was the Lord Jesus who dramatically turned Paul's life around in the first place. Who took him from being a persecutor to a preacher, from being a murderer to a missionary, to a Christian, to an apostle, to a role model. Paul wasn't saying that we, if we all just lived our lives and acted more like him, then we would all finally and ultimately be saved like him. No, he knew that that credit belonged to God alone. But in the words right before our reading, earlier in Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about his attitude in life. The way that he looks at the things that he experienced, and if you remember the life of Paul after he became a Christian, it was a life of pretty much nonstop persecution and suffering. In fact, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians while he's sitting in a prison cell. And here's what he writes. This is what keeps him going. This is what keeps him striving to remain connected to God and his word Paul said, not that I have already obtained all of this, this heavenly glory, or have already been made perfect. No, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that as his fellow Christians went through life, that they would inevitably follow the path of someone who had gone before them. Just as you had teachers and mentors, and parents, and coaches, and influencers in your educational, professional, athletic, and personal lives. So when it comes to your faith, when it comes to your godly living, instead of looking around the world to see who you would want to imitate your life after, Paul says, look within the family of believers for good guides to Christian living. I should be able to say this to you as your pastor. Follow my example. You should be able to say this to each other. Live your life the way that I have lived mine. Can you? You know, for my money, there is no greater hymn that has ever been written than the one that we just sang. Lord, Thee I love with all my heart. A, a while back, we did a Bible class on 
preparing to die and thinking through your funeral plans. And the more and more I sing this hymn and the more and more I think about my own funeral, I'm pretty sure instead of picking my top five favorite hymns, I'm just going to have them sing this hymn five times. Because as far as I'm concerned, there's not even a number two on my list. Lord, Thee I love with all my heart, and yet as I sing it, I can't help but think, is it true? Do I really love the Lord with all my heart? Earth has no pleasure I would share? Yes, if heaven itself were void and bare, if you were not near me, Lord. Meaning that no matter what blessing I experience here on earth, no matter how beautiful heaven is like or who else would be there, if you, Lord Jesus, are not there, if you, Lord Jesus, are not near me, then neither heaven nor earth have anything to offer me. And should my heart for sorrow break, my trust in you can nothing shake? Really? Nothing? I mean, set aside the big stuff. Set aside losing the love of your life. Set aside standing in front of death itself. Just look at the little things on a day-to-day basis that cause us to question God, that cause our faith to shake. You see and you sing a hymn like this. And it becomes kind of difficult to say, brothers and sisters, follow my example. And to say it with a straight face. But then you sing the rest of it. You are the portion, Lord, I have sought. Why? Why in all the worlds of in all the paths that you could have chosen in life, of all the directions your life could have gone, why, oh why, did you ever seek the Lord? The very next line tells you, your precious blood my soul has bought. You see, it it was always Jesus. It always begins with Jesus. Even in what Paul said earlier, did you catch it? Paul said, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus first, we could say, took hold of me. I press on toward the goal to win the prize. Sounds like a very admirable trait to follow, but Paul says the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It all begins with Jesus. You see, Paul could say, I can say, you can say, follow my example. Not because we're confident in ourselves that we have anything on our own to offer each other. We can say it because by the grace of God alone, Christ who lived for us now lives in us and through us. 
And so to say, follow my example, is to say, follow Christ. Because by the power of God's word and the work of his spirit, that's who we follow. That's who we love with all our hearts. The one who loved us with all of his heart first. Paul wants us to see that the Christian life is lived by walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Which means that it, the Christian life is also lived always in the shadow of the cross. Because that's where the footsteps of Jesus lead. Which means that the Christian life is not a glorious life. At least not in the eyes of the world. Even by some who call themselves Christian. Paul said, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Notice how Paul doesn't just say, many people are enemies of God, or many people are enemies of Jesus. I think most people today can at least stomach a conversation about God. I think many people around the world today still have some sort of admiration for this Jesus of Nazareth because of the humility and the compassion that he showed people. But when you start talking about the cross, it's a whole different story. Now you're not just talking about the humility of Jesus. You're talking about the humiliation of Christ. That this is the reality of your sin. That this is what they deserve. This is what you deserve. This is what I deserve. That this was the cost of your salvation. That we glory in the cross of Christ. That as difficult as it is to look at, that there is nothing more beautiful than the cross of Jesus. And that's why many are opposed to it. They're specifically enemies of the cross of Christ. They want their destiny to be prosperous and healthy and happy not to involve a cross. Not realizing that apart from Christ, their destiny is actually destruction. They want a God who will give them what they want now in the way that they want it now without having to sacrifice or struggle or bear any sort of cross. After all, what's the point in having an almighty God if he doesn't use his power to make your life easier? And so God won't cut it as their God. No, their God is their stomach. Always chasing after the latest hunger, the next meal of, of success, the next meal of stuff, never realizing that none of it will satisfy you, but all of it only makes you hungrier. Sort of like an addict. An addict who thinks, in order to maintain the high, I just have to continue to use the same amount of drugs. But the reality is, if you want to maintain that high, your amount of drugs or your amount of alcohol, your amount of whatever it is, will ever be increasing. And so it is with the God of the stomach. Which results in 
their glory is their shame. If I'm opposed to suffering and my God is my stomach, then even shameful things become your glory. The things that God condemns as sinful and the things that He wants you to avoid become the very things you're most proud of because they make me happy and they make me feel good and my stomach God is satisfied. At least I think it is. At least for the moment. And we know what that God is like, don't we? I mean, we intimately, deeply, experientially know what it's like to follow the God of our wants and our lusts. Here's how Paul would summarize this walk of life. He says, their mind is on earthly things, which I find ever so interesting. Paul would say, the earthly-minded are of no earthly good. To be an enemy of the cross of Christ is to be an enemy of self-sacrifice for the sake of another. And to be the enemy of self-sacrifice for another is to be the enemy of loving your neighbor. And to be the enemy of loving your neighbor, then the only thing you have left is to love yourself. And when your greatest love and your greatest concern in this life is yourself, then my ultimate good is the only thing that matters. And what in all the world would a world look like that was filled with people who lived like that? Well, don't strain your imagination too much. Because you're living in it. And sad to admit, you and I are part of it. But God loves his world. He loves his creation. He loves his humanity, fallen though they are. He loves all of it too much to leave us to simply love ourselves. So how does he combat it? He sends his son to live and die and rise, not for himself, but for the world. To live and die and rise for you. And on account of the selfless, sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, here's what all of that does for you. But our citizenship is in heaven. The word that Paul uses there for citizenship is, it's the place where you go that you have all of the rights and privileges of being home. All of the rights and privileges of being in a place where you belong. And so you're an American citizen, and that matters. That really means something. Important things are guaranteed to you simply by your either being born here or your acquiring American citizenship. But take all of those American rights and all of those privileges and they pale in comparison to what it means to have your citizenship in heaven. A citizenship that was given to you not by your birth into this world, but by your rebirth of water and the Spirit in baptism. Rights and privileges given to you, guaranteed to be yours always. 
rights and privileges like the forgiveness of sins. All of your guilt is gone forever. Paid for in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. Rights and privileges like the invitation to call God your Father and to speak to Him in prayer as tenderly and as innocently as dear children speak to their dear Father. Rights and privileges like the deposit of His Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God calls your body His holy temple, His perfect dwelling place. The place where he does all of his best work. Where he pours out through your life his fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. All of this is yours. Guaranteed as citizens of heaven your true and lasting home. And if that wasn't enough, if that didn't suffice, Paul says there's even more. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Do you hear it? Paul wants you to be heavenly-minded. He draws our eyes to the skies from where that same Jesus who lived and died and rose again for you, will come back to resurrect you. To take your dust and ashes, calling you forth from your own grave, where he will take your lowly body, your mortal flesh, your perishable life, and transform it so that it will be like his gloriously resurrected, never-to-die-again body. Do you recognize that we confess that each week in the creed? We just said it before the sermon. We said, we look for the resurrection of the body. Do you know that we're not talking about Jesus' resurrection there? That's not a reference to Easter. Not directly, anyway. That's a confession in a faith that holds to the promise that you will have your own resurrection. We look for the resurrection of this body and the life of the world to come. Okay, so all of that is in the future. Down the road, promised. But do you see how pondering all of that each day? Pondering all of that, how being heavenly-minded right now is not only beneficial to you mentally, emotionally, spiritually, but it is also beneficial for the earth, for your neighbor. You know, a number of months ago, we read a book in our Bible class on the doctrine of vocation. And I still have copies of that book. If you haven't read the book yet, I would highly encourage you to. I, I don't think I'm overstating it, that that book was life-changing for the vast majority of people who took that class. There was a number of them, but there were, there were certain phrases and lines that kept coming up in that book over and over again that stuck with me and that I'll never forget. And one of them was this. The author kept encouraging us, his readers, Christians. He would say, venture all things, he would say. 
Venture all things. Now, just so that we're all on the same page, Webster defines venture as a business enterprise involving considerable risk. Here's what the author was saying in that book. Dear Christian, risk everything. Don't be afraid to risk all that you have. Not for yourself and not for Jesus. Neither you nor he needs anything. Be willing to risk it all. Venture all things for your neighbor. Because when your citizenship is in heaven, when your future is so secure that not even death can touch it, well, when the promise of life eternal is tied to a resurrected Jesus, well, then what else is there? What do you need to harbor or hold on to or protect what in this life do you need to keep so secure for yourself that you can't venture it for your neighbor? Venture all things, friends, as you love and serve and sacrifice for those around you, comforted to know that the God of heaven and earth did the exact same thing for you on his cross, and it won for you your salvation. The heavenly-minded are of no earthly good. No offense to Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. He was an amazing poet, but I vehemently disagree with this one. I'd say the heavenly-minded are of much earthly good. As you take the goods entrusted to you by Christ out into the various marketplaces of this world, heavenly goods that can and will change hearts and lives, lives which were once walking down the path to destruction, change them to now walking the way of the cross that leads to resurrection and eternal life. That's what it did for you. And may the God of all grace, through you, accomplish the same for many others. Therefore, my dear sisters and brothers, you whom I love, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm. And God grant it. Amen.